Uh, thanks for that introduction. Uh, I want to thank everyone for coming today and especially thank Skylight Books for having me. I, um, I wrote this as an academic book, but I've really always hoped that it would live in the community and have a big life. Uh, it's a big story, and um, so it means a lot to me to have you here and my community here um, to hear me talk about the book and read from it. I, um, I mean, part of the reason why that's so important to me is that this is actually a book about democracy. And in an immigrant nation such as ours, uh, we depend on institutions like the public school to provide opportunities for people. Regardless of the status of your birth, you have an opportunity to participate in the life of the nation, that you can participate in the social life of our nation. You can participate in the political life of our nation and the economic life of our nation. And if you don't have that opportunity, which is allowed through the public schools, then we really don't have a claim to a democracy at all. It requires that. It's at the foundation of our society. And really early on, uh, folks like Horace Mann figured that out. And public schools were started in the 1850s uh, with that in mind. Uh, so the problem is that we have public schools, but some of them are so inadequate and marginal that folks aren't given the opportunities to participate. And more to the point of my book, even in these in inadequate schools, kids are getting pushed out. So they're not getting a chance to participate in those schools. Um, the kids who are really targeted for being pushed out under suspension and expulsion policies are low-income African-American males. And uh, they, one in three African-American males in our society will spend time in prison. And keep in mind that we have 2.3 million people behind bars today and 7 million in custody. So 1.3 of that total population. But if you look at African-American males who are undereducated, who have dropped out of school, 75% of them will spend time in prison during their lifetime. And that statistic, even though my work is qualitative, is really at the heart of the problem that I am looking at in this book. Uh, I just want to mention, too, that this is relevant for uh, elections because there are six million people who are disenfranchised through state voter laws, and that is about 8% of the total adult African-American population. That's enough to change an election, and in fact, Al Gore would have won in 2000 had we established voting rights for felons, including folks who have actually served time and are in the community. In many states, they're denied the right to vote. Um, and there are folks like Ruthie Gilmore who call that a civil death. So I want to talk about sort of how that happens in public schools and how the war on crime in the criminal justice system has played out in this very democratic of institutions that we call the public school system uh, and how suspension and expulsion policies has, have mimicked a lot of the tough on crime policies that we've seen in the criminal justice system like zero tolerance policies, three strikes, and how that has pushed kids out. After they get pushed out, they often get called dropouts, but the fact of the matter is that institutions are actively pushing them out to the margins where they do not stand a chance of participating fully in the life of our nation. So I want to start by reading uh, a, a short section that just gives you the national context for the book. Uh, in the late 20th century, 
public schools across the nation turned to the criminal justice system as a model for discipline, adopting the very same strategies that were designed to fight drugs and crime on the national stage. Public schools partnered with criminal justice agencies, tapped into homeland security monies, instituted zero tolerance policies, invested in surveillance and metal detection, set up police uh, offices on campus, expanded security staff, and infused school campuses with the toughness that was endemic to the war on crime itself. In this period, national school suspension rates rose dramatically. In 1974, 1.7 million students were suspended from school. In 2011, 3.5 million. Now that is enough to fill 45 years worth of Super Bowl stadium seats. Almost half of these students, one and a half million, were suspended more than once. And given that an average suspension is three and a half days, you can just start to do the math, as I did. That's 18 million days of classroom instruction that were lost in that single year because of forced educational exclusion. And in most states, you've got 180 classroom days. So you take 180 and 18 million days of lost instruction, that's equivalent to 100,000 academic school years lost in a single academic year of 2011-2012. And that's why I wrote this book. Now, my book actually looks specifically at the case of New Orleans. And... Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened in New Orleans and how you can see these dynamics playing out in, um, in that city. And then a little bit about how I did the research for the book and how I came to actually write it. In 2002, the criminal sheriff in New Orleans, Louisiana, opened a new public school at the Orleans Parish Prison. The school enrolled a group of African-American boys who had previously been removed from regular public schools, most for nonviolent offenses such as tardiness or disrespect. It's often called willful defiance or insubordination. And for five days a week, these students were escorted to the school for nearly 12-hour days on the prison grounds. Despite the fact that they had not been charged with, tried for, or convicted of anything other than status offenses. And status offenses are those offenses that are uh, only designated as law-breaking when they relate to certain social groups like minors, for example. Otherwise, they're not considered a crime. The building that contained their school was a low-slung space in the shadows of the larger prison complex. Small barred windows, a tall fence, and surveillance cameras surrounded the property, clearly marking it as a correctional site. The young boys, ranging in age from 12 to 17, were supervised by the warden, who was also the criminal sheriff of Orleans Parish. Uh, the students were taught by inexperienced and uncredentialed teachers relying on a remedial curriculum and were surveilled and disciplined by the sheriff's deputies who monitored the students' movements and responded to all disruptions, small and large. Locals called it the prison school. Uh, I learned about the school at the Orleans Parish Prison quite by accident. In April of 2002, I was attending a large education conference. My friend Miriam was with me uh, in downtown New Orleans. And late in the morning, I was leaving a panel at, at the Sheridan Hotel, you know, crossing Canal Street to go to the Marriott. And on the way, I was stopped by this loud protest on the sidewalk. 
And um, uh, this really tall, broad-shouldered African-American man um, had a, he had a white baseball cap, and he was standing at the center of the group, and he was he was protesting. It was so loud I could really barely understand what he was saying. And there were a few other men, several women, uh, a young girl, and and he had on a white T-shirt, and he had faded jean shorts down that that went past his knees. He had black sneakers, and he had white tube socks that were pulled up on his calves as if a single wrinkle would have undone him. And um, he held this large poster in his hands that had a picture of a fortified structure on it. And the text on it said, schools, not incarceration. Well, I was already pretty interested in the topic. Um, At the time, I was teaching at San Quentin Prison, and I was doing a research project at a school in Oakland. So I was really interested in prison spaces and school spaces already, and I had seen similarities between those two institutions because I was moving back and forth between them on a weekly basis. So this caught my attention. Uh, As I stood alone in front of the group, the rush of the conference carried on, its attendees seemingly indifferent to the local protesters shouting, I finally understood Close Fody's Dungeon. I approached the tall man in the white cap, and as he stepped forward to talk to me, other members of the group took the lead. I was so noisy, he had to lean in to talk to me, and he had to cup his ear around his mouth um, to shout in my ear. And in time, I grasped that he was protesting the establishment of a, of a school at the Orleans Parish Prison. Uh, his name was Albert Chewy Clark. He was named Chewy, which means panther in Swahili. He was named in the 50s by the Black Panthers, a group that he was um, a part of in New Orleans. And I told him that I wanted to go see the school. Uh, Chewy turned and he spoke to the sole white woman in the group. And she was in her 50s and she had very long, straight, gray hair. And she had an eye patch that went around her head. And he said, she'll drive you. And she did. So I ditched the conference because I really didn't want any more. I didn't want to hear any more panels. And, um, and we went to the school together. And the school building uh, had bars on the windows. It had surveillance cameras surrounding it. So it really, like all the markings of an institution of high security. Uh, coming from behind the tall privacy fence, tightly surrounding the property, I could hear male voices. There were some adult voices. There were some young kids. Um, but I couldn't make out what they were saying. And then every now and then over the fence, I would see a basketball like go over the fence and hit a makeshift goal that was made out of, I think it was a coat hanger and a piece of plywood. Uh, it was makeshift uh, for sure. Um, so they were lobbing the ball towards this goal, but it was late in the afternoon. It's the, the time when most students would have been home. Um, and within minutes of my standing there, a gold sedan pulls up. It's a Honda four-door, and it's gold. And it pulls up, and a woman who's very well-heeled, and is, her hair is cut in the most precise bob you've ever seen, she, she steps out of the car, and she d- introduces herself as the sheriff's assistant. Now, I don't actually know how she knows that I've been there, except either someone notified her that someone was sort of looking around, or they caught me on the surveillance camera. Uh, So I introduced myself as well, and I started asking her some questions. And it went kind of like this. Uh, What did these kids do to get here, I asked. And she said, they were disciplinary problems, which I thought was very vague. Uh, Were any of them violent, I asked. Only one, he hit another kid in the nose, but the rest, no. What did the other kids do, I asked her. Well, they were hard to manage, she said. What do you mean? They were disrespectful, talked back to their teachers. 
Well, I heard people talking about this school downtown, I said. I was told that when it opened, it served only students who were black and male. Is that, is that true? Well, when it opened, yes, but we've since added a white student. <laughs> I study schools. Could you let me inside to see it? She paused. For your safety and the safety of the children, we can't allow that. I left the school, kind of fired up, but in the days that followed, I stepped up my efforts to gain access to the children inside the prison school. I was, I was actually really worried about the children. And I made nearly 70 more contacts by phone, in person, and mail. I stood outside the sheriff's office. I stood outside the school board office. Uh, I talked to the school principal, the district administrators, and every single one of them reinforced the total inaccessibility of this school. And I pushed so hard that I finally was told, listen, you can study any school in New Orleans you want. We'll give you access to any school except the prison school. So it struck me, because I had been teaching at San Quentin, that I had a much easier time getting into San Quentin every month than I was having getting into this public school. So, as I said, I was really kind of concerned about what was happening to those students and what were, what were the accountability structures? What kind of education were they getting? Was, were they getting their right to education? Uh, and so the question was, how am I going to find these students? They won't let me inside. Well, so the prison school was a citywide program, which meant that the 14 students who attended the school and there were 14 when it first started, uh, did not necessarily live anywhere near the prison. In fact, they could have lived anywhere in New Orleans. But my instincts in the national and local data, local data on educational disenfranchisement and the data on poverty told me to look for the boys in the most marginal spaces of the city. I began by mapping the ghettos of New Orleans, and I walked through them starting with the Ninth Ward. This ward, made famous in subsequent years by Hurricane Katrina, was segregated and impoverished, and the schools serving the neighborhood were very poor. Students in the Ninth Ward schools dropped out or were pushed out in high numbers every year. Now, walking the streets as a means of study has a long sociological history, allowing direct observation to guide the research project process. W.E.B. Du Bois conducted his social history of Philadelphia's seventh ward called the Philadelphia Negro by walking through the streets and conducting a house-to-house -house canvas. Robert Park, the famed Chicago school sociologist, worked and walked street by street to delineate lines of racial segregation and he made tours of exploration. Uh, this was a habit of walking the city to gain impressions of the field by walking, to being out, being out in public space, being in the democratic sphere that public schools are also supposed to be. So now, central to this orientation of research is, is a real consciousness about the importance of seeing the world from the perspective of those who are seldom listened to, gang members. Um, Criminal justice studies emerged out of the Chicago School of Sociology. Um, the immigrant, the vagrant, and it's a belief in the ability for urban research to make visible those people who are most marginalized in society. So with this in mind, I struck out on the streets. I went street by street in the Ninth Ward, 
And I went door by door, knocking and knocking and knocking until someone could help me find the kids. I would walk up to kids on the street and say, do you know anyone who is going to this school? And they, usually the answer was, why do you want to know? And so I would have to take a lot of time sitting on their porch, talking to them for the afternoon to help them understand why I was interested because they weren't going to give me the answers because the, why would they? They had no reason to trust that I had good intentions, uh, certainly when they had been betrayed so many times by people in New Orleans. Now, by most accounts, New Orleans was a dangerous time, a dangerous city at the time of my research. There were high incidents of violent crime, and the city had the nation's highest per capita rate of homicide, which was about six times the national average. At several points in my research, I was one degree of separation from a local murder victim. A boy named Harmon was actually one of the students at the prison school, and one of, he and one of his friends were murdered before I could interview them. My university colleague's girlfriend was shot and killed in New Orleans, apparently for her purse, when she was taking her bicycle home from a concert. There was a quintuple murder in the Central City neighborhood in 2006, and I spent time going door-to-door in that, at that very intersection the following week. Uh, in the later phases of my research, my wife was coincidentally hired to teach at, uh, at Tulane University. And at the new faculty orientation, uh, she came home and told me about it. She told me that her dean had advised her not to walk in the city at night alone. Now, I actually found that advice rather striking because think, how, I mean, how many of you have been to New Orleans? I mean, it's one of the most exciting places to be out on the street. It has this really vibrant nightlife. Music fills out onto the street. It's where the city lives. The city lives on the street in that public space. Um, so despite what I was told and despite what the dean told my wife, I did not approach the city as a dangerous place, nor did I understand the people that I talked to that way. I hung out with Chewy Clark, who I later learned was a formerly incarcerated man. He spent 17 years in Angola prison. And he, he had led the protests of the prison school. And I hung out with the kids who had been kicked out of school. And I just, I understood them as everyday people who were trying to make their lives work in the context of rampant socioeconomic inequality. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Chewy. And sitting in his car, he said to me at one point, because I was getting a little close, we were, we were getting close, and he said, you can't just come into the black community. And he said this in the context of a discussion about another white woman who had gotten involved in a race conciliation, reconciliation campaign. But I realized in that moment that I was similarly implicated for my own research. I was a white outsider looking into this world. And as Chewy suggested in his comment to me, there's something presumptuous about embedding yourself in a community that's not your own and having expectations of acceptance. Over time, Chewie and I developed a relationship based on trust, and he said, you know, I am trusting you with all this because you hear me and you know what I'm saying. We spent a lot of time talking in his white sedan, and he, he picked me up at my apartment and he would take me around the city to, let, to show me everything he thought I needed to know to understand how a prison school could come to be. 
Uh, he charted the history of race relations in New Orleans, explained that the prison school emerged from the kinds of racial discrimination that undergird plantation ideologies, Jim Crow laws, school segregation, racialized policing, mass incarceration. He drove me down Jefferson Parkway, so named to honor a champion of slavery who served white supremacy as the president of the Confederacy. We drove around and around Lee Circle, sort of halfway up St. Charles, it was like we were tethered to, to the statue there at the center of Robert E. Lee, who was Jefferson Davis's successor. The bronze statue of Lee stands atop a towering Doric column like a sentry guarding the city's central business district so that all commerce in the city takes place under the scrutiny of Lee's racist logic. We went to John McDonough High School. Nineteen schools were founded in New Orleans by the name John McDonough. He was a former slave owner. Some of those schools still stand or open. Uh, we stood below Confederate flags on billboards and buildings. We watched white men walking down the street with the Confederate flag on their belts, snapping them on their suspenders, on their hats. Cars and trucks passed us with Confederate flags around their license plates. And Chewy looked at me and said, what does all of this tell you? In the course of my research, which ultimately spanned a period of three and a half years, I logged over a thousand hours in the research field. I didn't ultimately find all 14 of the boys, as I had hoped to, who had attended the prison school. Instead, I found two students, Jamal and Spider. I learned from them by spending time with them in their homes. I hung out in their kitchens with their mothers and grandmothers. We hung out on the porch. I went to talk to their former teachers, their current teachers, their employers. You know, I I meet them at the McDonald's after work and talk to them. And they were really, really excited that someone was writing a book about them. Now, while Chewy, Jamal, and Spider remained my primary informants, I also learned about the punitive dynamics in New Orleans from other locals and other protesters, including Robert Hillary King, who's a former Black Panther Party member and member of the Angola Three. Uh, On the whole, the data I collected from individuals in law enforcement was the most limited, which ultimately suggested an intentionality to their obfuscation. I was given the runaround by the school board, by the administrators, teachers, record keepers, and it seemed like they too willingly lost sight of the students. Even school records had been destroyed. And I went to go to one school, a middle school, where this kid's spider had gone to school because his mother and he said, go find my school records. You can use them, study them. So I went to the middle school and I talked to the secretary and the principal and they said, well, they're not here. What do you mean they're not here? He'd just been at the school just like nine months prior. She said, well, go look in the drawers. So I looked through every file in every drawer in the principal's office, and his file was nowhere to be found. It wasn't there. And she said, you know, I, I went to her and said, this doesn't make sense. You know, where could the file be? He's a public school student. She said, you know what you should do? You should get in your car and drive across the Mississippi River because some of the school files were stored in a church basement over on the other side of the river near the French Quarter. And I thought, that makes absolutely no sense, but I'm not going to get in my car. I'm going to drive across Mississippi River. So I I arrive at the church, and there's an African-American man in about his 50s, and he's standing in the church basement. I find the basement. And he's stooped over a mop, and it's just, it's really mucky in this space. And I said, you're not going to believe this, but 
this woman at this middle school told me that there were school files here. He said, yeah, there were. And I said, where are they? Oh, he said, well, the space flooded. And um, I, he said, everything had to be thrown out. And I said, everything? And he said, yes, everything. So I stood there for a moment and I asked him, why would they put school files in a church basement that's under sea level? And he looked at me and he said, more of the same, ma'am. More of the same. So I grew to interpret these disappearances and the difficulty of gaining access to the files, to the students, to the school, as evidence of systemic concealment strategies, veiling long-standing traditions of racialized disregard and neglect. Relegating student files to a flood-prone basement was a way of discarding them, leaving little evidence that these youths had ever existed in the New Orleans public schools. And if they could be said to have never existed in the system, There was also no record of them having been pushed out. And the same issue came up in the Orleans Parish Prison after Katrina, as no one knew where the inmates were because they were doing the same thing. They were just moving people around so they couldn't locate them. So they claimed that no one died in the Orleans Parish Prison in Hurricane Katrina. Meanwhile, there were accounts of bodies floating by. So... um, There were other disturbing things that I found just looking at it district-wide that... um, the recovery school district omitted performance reports in New Orleans by way of a data formatting scheme, thus skewing the performance data upward. Uh, some folks investigating it called it a creative data manipulation. I ultimately came to understand the boys in these schools, these African-American boys, as invisible men in the making. In the summer of 2005, I actually returned to California to teach for the fall semester at UC Berkeley, and I had begun writing up my research findings after 18 months of data collection. Uh, Thus, I was in the Bay Area and not in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina hit and flooded the city on August 29, 2005. From afar, with all lines of communication severed, I studied news images. I was looking for faces that I recognized. I worried over who had survived. I was looking for Spider. I was looking for Chewy. I was looking for Jamal. I looked back at the the data that I had collected, which was evidence of their lives, and also the last ethnographic account of the Ninth Ward. I thought about how, yet again, the plight of African Americans in New Orleans was patterned by the themes of racial exclusion, abandonment, isolation, disposal, invisibility, and disappearance. In other words, Katrina echoed the janitor's refrain, revealing more of the same. It was five months or so after Katrina before New Orleans had begun functioning at a very basic level. And when I returned in 2006, I found myself walking the streets again, mourning the loss of so many lives, and thinking of all the stories gone untold. In the Ninth Ward, in the area surrounding where I had walked before in search of the students from the prison school, I was encountering just miles and miles of storm wreckage. Travel was difficult. The, the, the buses and the streetcars were offline. It made it difficult for the people who were in the city to actually get to work. And after a couple of weeks of long walks across the city, my father... I drove down an old Buick that he had uh, so that I could drive around the city. And I popped the tires on that Buick so many times that I finally just went and got a used bike. Um, It was really hard traveling across New Orleans. I saw homes. They were torn open to the street. And every home was this just 
it was a story of what had happened to that family. And you could just, you could piece it together. You could walk into the space and you'd see the water lines on the wall so you would know how far the water had risen. You would see holes in the attic, overturned sofas, family portraits still clinging, askew to the flood-stained walls. I toured one empty shell of a school after another, stepping over huddled desks, kicking aside mildewed textbooks and fallen bulletin board flyers. The absence of human life was haunting. Most days I could go for blocks without seeing another soul. These excursions brought me into spaces where all humanity appeared lost. But as I exited the residence and institutions that lay in ruin, I saw a life again in the city streets. The public spaces of accountability, democracy, and hope The absence I felt everywhere inspired my need to find presence and promise somewhere in what remained. And along the way, I started writing this book. Thank you. So what I thought I'd do is we could have some time for questions or comments or thoughts. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, thank you so much. <clears throat> so was this like primarily an act of um, like racism, or were they getting financial gain out of the schools? The, yes, yes, and yes, they were. So um, they were using some mechanisms that were in place for the prisons in Louisiana, where they were um, they were shifting convicts from one prison to another, and. Basically, uh, prison work, the sheriffs who were running the prisons were basically engaging in something like innkeeping. It was like innkeeping. If they kept the beds full, they would get money for the night. So if they had too many inmates, they would send the extra inmates over to another prison so that, that that sheriff could make money. But they never wanted to have the beds empty. So they had extra space at the prison, and they started running a school uh, at the prison. And they were getting paid by the school board per head. Uh, And so in doing my research on this book, you know, I have quotes in the book of people saying, you know, those inmates were just heads that we got paid $300 a day for. But it also reproduced the racist ideologies that were, that had long structured uh, New Orleans. Yeah. So congratulations on your book. Thanks. Um, I think it should be required reading for all of our middle school through high school, and I'll assign it to my students. That's awesome. Um, one thing I'm wondering about is, is there a role or was there a role during your time conducting the ethnography for civil society, either as civil rights act, you know, advocates or... Um, creating opportunities for intervention? And if not, where do you think is the best hope for that? Is this a sort of rising abolitionist movement that's happening from the prisons and Mm -hmm. out in the system? Or how how do you see possible interventions? Yes. So uh, it was happening on many levels. And that's where I see the best hope, that it's a constellation of efforts put together. and um, so Chewy was protesting on the streets. And then um, 
After Katrina, so the school ended up, he, Chewy actually ended up getting the school closed. He had an eighth grade education. Sheriff Hoodie had been his former warden. And they, the two go head to head on the streets of Canal, on, the, on Canal Street, the streets of New Orleans. And he, with his eighth grade education, having served 17 years in Angola, he goes up against Sheriff Hoodie, who has, who's probably the third most powerful figure in New Orleans. He's connected to the Landrews, who are considered the Cajun Kennedys. And, and Chewy, shuts him down, which is amazing. And then every school in New Orleans was shut down when Hurricane Katrina hit. So when the schools came back, I was there when they started rebuilding the schools and there were lots of conversations in the neighborhoods about what kind of school do we want, what will serve our students. There were lots of complaints, like the schools are harsh and we're not learning anything. They're terrible schools. We're getting kicked out of these inadequate schools. We need a nurturing environment. We need to develop school culture that's supportive of all students. Um, And so there was this real sense of hope that because what happened after Katrina is that it became the largest school reform effort in the history of the United States because every single school in the city had to to start over again. So this is like this great hope. Um, But what... So And students actually were pushing, like as a few schools opened, because literally students were just, li- when they, if they were there in New Orleans, or they, some came back without their parents, they're lining up down the street just trying to get into the school. I mean, they're banging on the doors to get into these schools. And it was the same with Jamal and Spider. They're like, I want my education, and you're kicking me out. So school, uh, the students started protesting. They had, but the problem was that the schools had a, they were harsh even when they started back. So in one school, the, um, there were, there were one, a parent said, there were so many cops at this school, when at, it was John McDonough, when it reopened, that it looked like a crime scene without the yellow tape. So they came back harsher than ever, and they fed tons of money into security protocols uh, for these schools. But the, but the kids organized a group called the Fire Youth Squad, and they... They went all the way to Baton Rouge. And the reason they had to go to Baton Rouge is because they had decentralized the power. So they had taken, um, or they had centralized the power in Baton Rouge and taken it away from New Orleans. So the kids had to charter a bus with the help of the Juvenile Justice Project of Louisiana and go all the way to Baton Rouge to fight for schools. And they got a few things changed, but not really what they wanted. Uh, But you have... um, but you have lots of advocates who are working from all angles to do this, and I think, uh, for me, it's about not giving up hope on, the, on these schools. Because if you do, as I said in the beginning, you're giving hope, up hope on the idea of democracy itself. So at every angle. Yes, Kate? Are you aware of any other schools around the country in similar circumstances? Uh, this is really the extreme case scenario. So there are other schools, but a lot of them are actually in, in prisons for kids who have actually been charged with a crime. Um, so this is actually an extreme case. But a lot of the, the features that supported this case you see in many schools across the country. So zero tolerance policies, three strikes policies, um, surveillance cameras, metal detectors. I mean, school policing is the fastest growing sector of law enforcement. Uh, and it has changed drastically in the war on crime era as all, all of that the ideology, the punitive ideology is played out in those institutions. Yeah. Yes? After just reading the introduction to this, I, I could 
I worked in the school district from 1970 to the present. And uh, as an employer, you know, when I started, there weren't any school police. There weren't any, right. um, you know, everything could be taken care of. Now there's school police, police on campus. Um, my grandson got in a fight and got his job. He had to go before the district attorney and go to anger management classes because he got in a fight in school. And I thought, gee, almost every grown man I know got in a fight in school, you know. And um, it, it's, so it is everywhere. And uh, it just makes you feel lost. It does, and if you think about what those, like when you put police in schools, what's their training? What's, what kind of training do they have? I mean, they are trained in law enforcement. And so, and then you think about, well, what do kids need? I mean, the youngest kid who went to the school was 12. What does a 12-year-old boy need? Uh, law enforcement, a, a punitive measures. And so... Um, they need relationships. They need support. Was I had Jamal and Spider saying, you know, I just needed somebody to listen to me. And they, they were both self-declared mama's boys. And that's what they said. I just need somebody to listen to me. Nobody did. So when you put police in the schools, they're definitely not answering to that call. Um, and these kids are falling behind. And another thing that I reveal in the book is that if you look at, I, I track sort of when, okay, well, when are kids getting suspended and expelled? So what's the reason for this? Why? Well, if you chart it, you can see that suspensions and expulsions spike right before standardized tests. Now, in the No Child Left Behind Act, they... Um, Funding is tied to school performance and achievement. So often the kids that they're kicking out are the lowest performers, the kids who need the most help. So they're kicking them out right before the testing period under trumped-up disciplinary charges so they don't, they don't get figured into the pool and the school can still show achievement and the school gets more money. So that's actually back to the first question is, you know, why is this happening? And it feeds into sort of much, much broader uh, structural arrangements that are social and economic and political and cultural uh, and ideological. Hello. Thanks. Um, so, you know, we teachers are always amazed when people who don't have close contact kids say, gosh, that kid is so smart. I can't believe, you know. And so I wonder if you could say a little bit more, because I, I think that one of the problems is that they're, the voices of the youth and of the children are not they're not public in our society. Um, we actually pay attention and listen to them, that would be great. Um, so, could you say more about what, what, how Jamal and Spider experienced schooling and then the, the, the prison school? The different. You know, and, like, what were those two settings like for them? Like when they were at school, and how did they even get there? Well, they so they were they were in their traditional schools. They Jamal and Spider were showing up late by about five. Spider, for example, showed up late about five or ten minutes late to home room. And he, um, it was a traditional public school, and because he was late, and this was a period where they're just sitting in the cafeteria waiting for first period to begin. It was like a gathering time. He would be late, and he would get punished for being late. 
uh, which is ultimately he got suspended for being late, which if you think about it, it's just totally illogical because they're kicking, they're telling children who don't come to school that they can't come to school. It really makes no sense. Um, so th- that's what was happening to him. And he was behind, I, didn't, I couldn't get his school records. Right? But I know from him and from his mother that he was struggling to keep up. And um, he, was, he, he was, by the time he was 15, he was reading at a fourth grade level. Um, because I followed him, sort of, I went back to his earlier teachers, I taught to him at the prison school, and then after. Uh, he had a fourth grade education, so he was really, really behind. Jamal was also really behind. He said, though, when talking about what had happened to him, this whole path that sent him away from his traditional public school where he said he was just being a knucklehead, like hanging out in the halls. Uh, he, um, he didn't understand why this was happening to him. He was saying, well, why do they need a prison school for me? Why, why would I need an armed guard? This doesn't make any sense. And then he said, I used to want to be a teacher. And so that he was 14 years old and already sensing that he couldn't have a career as a teacher, that that was, his, that was an ambition that he had, he had discarded, um, told me that he didn't see any chance for himself. Um, they also told me that they really struggled economically. They said, you know, it's hard to get a job. And sometimes I have to, you know, I need to work at McDonald's and um, I'm late to school or I don't get my homework done. Um, and the other thing that I can tell you about them is that they were so loyal to their mothers. They were both being raised by single mothers, and they did describe themselves as, as mama's boys. And that they didn't, the thing that, one of the things that they found hardest to take about what had happened to them was that they felt like they were going to hurt their mothers. And they wanted to get out of the situation so that, they, they, that so their mothers weren't worrying about them. That was one of their greatest concerns. Yes. Um, out of the entire New Orleans school district, how were they selected to go to this Christmas? You said there were 14 out of thousands. Yes. Um, and that they were all minority in the beginning. So how were they selected or compelled to go to this Christmas? You know, it's a, it's a good question. The way, the, the way Chewy would answer that is he would say this was just a pilot project for 14 kids because even though the school district eventually said this isn't the direction that we want to take, the law enforcement thing is not what we want to do, at the same time that they said that, they were, had set aside $51 million to open up a school that would run, be run by community education partners for uh, a thousand children in Jamal and Spider's neighborhood. So this was just, it was a pilot project and they took some kids, the ones that they could get access to because the, the criminal justice system and those officials had relationships with those principals and those teachers. So they, they handpicked those kids and because they had been tardy or because they were hanging out in the halls, some because they had been disrespectful, and tried it out. And the criminal sheriff said, I'm a great educator. I've been running a GED program for my inmates for years, and the, the public schools in New Orleans are terrible, which was true. And I have the resources. They were criminal justice resources, but I have the resources to help these kids. Um, so the answer is it was... They were handpicked 
because of relationships, but ultimately the plan was to make it much larger. And I should add that the Community Education Partners, which was going to run the school for 1,000 kids for $51 million, was in a juvenile just they were a juvenile justice private juvenile justice provider so they're a private prison for kids and they ran what was called soft jails for kids so this was then a neoliberal strategy to take the public resources these public school dollars and push them toward a private juvenile corrections institution so this was really just the beginning yes why would the school district that's a good question. Well, they were making money by skewing the testing population. So money was coming to them through No Child Left Behind. When they were kicking these kids out, the, the test scores for the institution were going up. So they ended up making money. And that they were making money just by building these relationships with the, the power elites in the city across the, ju- the criminal justice system, political offices. So, uh, so really when you kind of take down into it, sort of no child left behind seems to be the, the root kind of driver of this, would you say? Or? I wouldn't say it's the root driver of this, but it, it supported it. It was... It's not one thing. I mean, when we, we talk about problems, we often think, well, it's just one problem. But it's actually a really complicated problem, and there are many things driving it. And that's why you have to answer complicated problems with complicated solutions. It's not one thing that we're going to use to address them. So that was a factor, but it definitely wasn't the only factor. I mean, they were, they were also preserving social privilege and racial privilege. Uh, they were preserving class status and political power. All of those things were working together. So to create this dynamic. Yes? Yeah, thank you for writing this book. And uh, I think Professor Dyson would be, uh, would be one of his top picks. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. That's... Getting to Angola, which is the largest prison system, I believe, in the country, I mean, it's the size of Manhattan, correct? It is uh, thousands of acres, 3,500 3, acres, I think. It was a former slave plantation and, exactly. and then a prison. I mean, yeah. that hasn't escaped scholars in the field. But my point is that I want to make is that public officials tend to demonize minorities in public schools, whereas one's behavior in another school it would be considered something different. And I think that's an issue that, uh, you know, as voters, you know, we need to address with our city officials. That's absolutely true. And there, there's a lot of evidence on that, that, that students are getting punished for behaviors in one school that are identical to behaviors in another, but they're enacted by a different social group and they're not getting punished. Uh, there's lots of lots of data on that to show just how discriminatory it is and how it reproduces the disenfranchisement using the public schools. Yes? I've read about and heard about um, judges who have been finally convicted of sending kids to prison for money, for like, getting paid to send yeah. usually kids of color to prison. Yeah. Um, did you talk about that in this book? And how, and how does that interact with your work? 
not so much because I was really focused on the public school system, but it's definitely part of the whole dynamic, part of the larger picture. Um, I talk about it sort of broadly, like how this was a profit, profit venture, um, but on all levels, on all levels. I mean, the, so the criminal justice system has a long arm, long reach. Yes? What was the stated goal of, what was the end goal for having uh, this, this particular school? I mean, if, if students were there, they were going through a prescribed curriculum, what happened at the end of that? You said they were from 12 to 17. Mm -hmm. So if I was a 14-year-old and I was there for 14 mm -hmm. years, what happened when I got to be 18? So the courses that they took didn't lead to high school graduation. The teachers weren't credentialed. Uh, their curriculum was remedial. And Jamal and Spider would say, you know, I, really, I wasn't learning anything in my traditional school, but I really wasn't learning anything at the prison school. It actually was like a jail. Uh, so they weren't, they weren't learning. Mostly it was a behavior modification curriculum. Um, and you have to think again about, well, who were the staff people? You had uh, armed sheriff's guards are controlling the space. So they were throwing kids up against the wall, according to Spider, um, putting kids in fatal, what could be considered a fatal chokehold. Um, but I mean, these are the kinds of things that we were actually seeing playing out on our streets. It's not just happening in public schools. So, you know, in many ways, the book does speak to the Black Lives Matter. But in terms of what it was supposed to achieve, the students will tell you it was achieving nothing. I, was, I wasn't learning anything. Chewy will, Chewy will tell you that this was about reproducing um, racist ideologies and reproducing privilege and white supremacy. The sheriff will tell you this was about saving children. So one thing I do in my book is I weave all of those narratives together. Uh, and it's tr everyone has a different perspective on what that is. But I do track the money, and so you can see where the money is going, and that provides some pretty clear answers about who is benefiting. So the ultimate goal in that regard is follow the money. It came straight down from Homeland Security. For in schools generally, not just this school, but schools generally, they're getting they're getting money from Homeland Security. They're getting investments in security and metal detection from GE. GE is linked to NBC. The stories about crime on the news, they they, they benefit NBC. Then the, then there's they sponsor the payments of the GE. GE is connected to the military industrial complex. I mean, that's it's a web. Um, yes. So I know that you said that the problem has complicated answers, but is there something at the top of your mind about what we can do? Well, for one thing, um, the students will say, I just needed somebody to believe in me. So in my mind, when I go back to what the students told me they needed, it's about not giving up on those kids. And we, when we give up on public schools, we're giving up on those kids. And we're, we're giving up on whole sectors of the population. And so it's, number one, about not giving up on any, any children and not giving up on any public schools and just being out there 
fighting. And the other thing is to insist that education happen in the school uh, rather than, than punishment. Because obviously schools are going to have social control forces operating in them. Um, I mean, we know that that happens in our own kids' school. So that's actually a, a given, and it's part of the reason why the public schools were put in place. But when that overrides the opportunity for education, uh, that's, a, that's a problem that we have to resist. You know, when you consider that 320,000 blacks have been killed by gun violence since 1980, a lot of it is rooted, some of the problem is rooted in the public school system and not being able to get a proper education. Yeah. I mean, the thing I think is tricky there is about um, still believing in the public school system because when you go back to sort of where I started is this institution is at the corner of a democracy and so we actually need to support that institution and not give up on it. So even though we have terrible schools all across our country, especially in urban areas that are serving minority students, um, we need to help those schools be better and insist that they are about educating kids uh, rather than punishing them. Um, and if we don't, then we are enacting violence within those very institutions. In my great program, Reading for Kids, for those that love to volunteer, Read to Kids is so important because, I mean, I was surprised to learn that California, as far as fourth grade reading levels, is one of the worst in the country. Yeah. Come on. Can you say more about... Um, about showing up. So Sheriff Foti, he's a really interesting, pretty charismatic um, person. And he had a lot of power in New Orleans. So now this is interesting, something I didn't bring up earlier. Not all of the parents of these kids who went to the prison school had really big problems about their kids going to that institution. Um, they thought, you know, the Sheriff Foti, he does so much for our community. He, was, he served as criminal sheriff of New Orleans for like since 1974. Now on the other side, she would say, yeah, when he started in 1974, there were 800 inmates, and there was only one building, and then he got that building, and he filled that one, and he got that building, and he filled that one, and then that building, and then suddenly there were 3,500 inmates. But these kids' parents were starting to say, but he provides a, a Thanksgiving meal for everyone, and he provides for us, and he employs us, because he was one of the largest employers in New Orleans, which is, of course, what fed his power. Um, he had so much power that even though Chewy was able to take him down and close the prison school, uh, Sheriff Charles Foti ran successfully uh, to serve as attorney general for the entire state of Louisiana. So he, had, he only served one term in office, but he, he left the Orleans Parish prison behind and went on to, to bigger things. He leveraged those connections to serve the state. Can you try to talk to 
I did talk to him, and he he was raised Catholic, and he had a very strong vision of his role in the community, and he would often reference the Bible, and he would talk about this was saving the children. So he was using his resources to save the children. Um, and there's a long history of that, the child saving movement, but he, would, he had an editorial in the Times-Picayune, and the title was, Let's Save the Children. And the whole story was about the prison school. So, anyway. Um, I'll just take one more question. Yes. Is there any carryover as of like today or recently um, of the hope that you were describing for you know the rebuilding of all the schools after Katrina? Did anything hopeful come about, or people you know still are people still working on that within that system? Because I'm sure there's still a lot of rebuilding. Yes. Okay. Well, that's a really good question. I'm glad it's kind of the perfect way to end because, um, well, first of all, I think every action sort of is is, and every protest is hopeful, and so and that is still happening. And Chewy is on the streets, you know, every day, doing that. Um, but something happened in New Orleans after the all the schools were shut in Katrina, is that they went to an entirely charter school system. So 100% of the schools in New Orleans are now charter schools. Um, And the problem with that is, you know, there's no center. Again, you've got kids, where do they go when they want to advocate, you know? Where does the, even the sociologist, where do you go? Who's accountable for that charter school or that one or that one? There's no one place to go. So there, it just, it fractured the system. Um, And um, I mean, ultimately, that's like a disciplinary strategy to maintain social control by fracturing the system. I mean, it's like classic Marxist theory, right? Like you break apart the cabals. And, um, so it's very difficult uh, when we allow that sort of center to break apart and we don't fight for the center. It's very hard to, in that fractured context, to fight for these kids because who are they? How do you even find them? How do you find the schools? Who's in charge? Um, uh, that said, there's... You know, people are out on the streets and they're working hard in other cities to prevent that from happening um, so that there is an accountability structure and that we're all working for the education of you know, all the kids in our community and so that everyone has equal access because some of those charter schools are better than others. And so how do you have the resources to figure out which charter school to get your kid in? And there need to be equal opportunities for education for everyone in the community or else... The, the, the charter school is... 10 miles away. Right, exactly. You can't get there if you don't have the proper. Exactly. And just, you can't get, you're, you're very limited. Um, you DeVos bus line. <laughs> exactly. And on that note, <laughs> thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.